Would you pray with me, please? Father God, we do want to be more Christian, a greater follower, a greater follower of our Lord Jesus Christ. We, we want in our hearts to be closer to you, more obedient to you. We just ask you, Father, that your word be our compass, that your grace be sufficient for all of us, Father, and that your mercy would be abundant, that your mercy would be abundant upon us, Father. We ask you to speak to us today. Speak to us through your word. Speak to us through your Holy Spirit. And come, Father, and be with us now as we open your word. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Did you miss me? (laughs) Hope you did. I mean, it was only two weeks, but I still want to be missing two weeks. I have a a quick question for you, and, and I know that some of you have, have said to me throughout, throughout the times that I've been teaching and preaching at St. David's, uh, I know that uh, some people have said that they love the way I preach, that they like the way I teach. And I did say some of you, not all of you. So that, that's all right. That's all right. I'm not holding grudges. But uh, the question that I do have for you is, is how many of you would like to actually sit at the feet of Jesus? How many of you would actually like to be able to sit at the feet of Jesus and actually be able to hear him teach? Because all that we are preachers are we're just the messengers. We're not the originators of the word. We just repeat what the Lord has said. In fact, we are prophets. And the word prophet is not only someone, it actually comes from the Greek word prophemi, which means to speak for. And sometimes the prophet foretells something that is about to come, but sometimes the prophet just simply foretells or tells forward or passes forward what the Lord has already said. And most preachers can be both. We can foretell and we can foretell and explain to the congregation the things that the Lord has already said. And most of the time when I preach, I do that uh, first of all. I just go to the Word of God and then I try to explain it to you the best of my understanding and hopefully your heart will receive it as the word of the Lord. But today, um, as, as we look at this sermon of Jesus, we are actually looking at the Sermon on the Mount. And many of you have heard of the Sermon on the Mount. The majority of the Gospel of Matthew, the majority of the Gospel of Matthew is divided into about four or five sermons of Jesus. And then in between sermons are different things that Jesus have done. Healings, 
uh, other teachings, traveling from here to there, stuff like that. But most of the Gospel of Matthew is five different sermons of Jesus, culminating with the Sermon on the End Times in chapter 24 and 25 of Matthew. So we might, when we look at the Sermon on the Mount, we might say that this is the first sermon that Jesus actually preached in public. That this is the first sermon that Jesus actually preached in public. And he tells us in chapter 1 that seeing the multitude, Jesus went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, And so he begins to preach. The Sermon on the Mount is actually a sermon on discipleship. It's Jesus' teaching on discipleship. From the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, and after he has called uh, Peter and Andrew and James and John, and they are already with him here as he's preaching this sermon, from the very beginning that he calls them, he begins to mold those that are following him into actually and truly becoming disciples, not just followers. There's a difference between just simply following and one who becomes a disciple who wants to learn and become like the master. That's the role of a disciple. It's not just to follow, watch him, and report in a newspaper or something. A disciple wants to become like his teacher. He learns everything, watches everything, so that he can repeat it and do it again and again and that's what a disciple is. Jesus begins to mold those that begin to follow him into becoming disciples. Disciples of Jesus and God followers. And he, he does this from the very beginning because somehow he needs to break and mold and rearrange the way in which these disciples are viewing things. The way that it has been taught to them through generations, the way that the Jewish people have held the teachings of the Word of God, especially through the Pharisees and Sadducees and the scribes. And Jesus somehow needs to look at what they have learned, and he needs to remodel it and remold it so they become not just what the culture is saying, but they become countercultural. They become, as disciples of Jesus, actually God followers and not necessarily preacher followers, not necessarily Pharisee followers. Not necessarily following the rules of old, but Jesus is rather in the Sermon on the Mount being extremely radical in the way he's reforming his followers. And I think today we have the same uh, idea that sometimes we are more like what the culture tells us to be than we are what God wants us to be. We all claim to be disciples of Jesus. We claim that we are Christians, but sometimes our Christianity is more informed by the culture than it is by the Word of God. 
Because the Word of God is rather extremely radical. And if we were radical as the Word of God calls us to be, we would probably as Christians look a lot different than what many of us look today. Amen? So the teachings of Jesus tend to be radical. This is a sermon on discipleship. Nowhere else in all of the Bible is Jesus clearer on what he wants his disciples to be and to do than in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount tends to want to answer for us, if I'm a disciple of Jesus, if I am a man or a woman of God, how then shall I live? How does it transfer from my head and my heart into the way I live? How shall I then live? When I was a young man, and... uh, my pastor asked me, or maybe I asked my pastor, I'm not sure, but I, I wanted to start teaching our youth group. And I started gathering probably about a dozen, maybe less, of the young kids in, 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 uh, in my church. And let me tell you, I, I wasn't even considering being a priest at the time. I just loved God. And I just wanted to teach these young men who were much younger than I was. I was probably in my early 20s, and they were probably between 15 and 18. And so I just wanted to pass on to them some of my passion that I had for God. However, I I had no idea where to begin. So I remember going to a bookstore in Glendale, the lighthouse it was called at the time, and buying a book on the Sermon on the Mount, because that's what I felt I wanted to teach these kids. And I bought a book by a a guy named James Montgomery Boyce. I believe I still have the book after so many years. And in his introduction on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Dr. Boyce says, truly we are near heaven here. In reading the Sermon on the Mount, truly we are near heaven here. And then he also said, the sermon points us to the way to please our Heavenly Father. This sermon points us to the way to hear to please our Heavenly Father. Now, let me say it this way. If you ever want to check your Christianity, if you want a barometer to check your Christian walk, to see how hot or how cold you are, Read the Sermon on the Mount. Go to the Sermon on the Mount, and you will see exactly where you are and where God wants you to be. Where we are still failing, where we are still not being everything He needs us to be or wants us to be, and where we need more work. If you ever truly care about how hot your Christian walk is, check it against the Sermon on the Mount. If you have, for whatever reason, gone astray in your Christian walk and you want to get back, go back to the Sermon on the Mount. It'll take you right back to Jesus. And if you are considering becoming a Christian and counting the cost, go to the Sermon on the Mount. It'll tell you clearly what the cost of following Jesus is about. The Sermon on the Mount 
is Jesus' description of the kingdom values. Of kingdom values. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' manual for everyone who wants to follow him so that they have something that will tell them what it is they need to become and what are those things they need to do. It is a sermon that sanctifies our lives because without the help of the Holy Spirit, there's no way any one of us can fulfill the Sermon on the Mount. It is the work of the Holy Spirit that will help us in our journey to what we need to become and who we need to be. So it will sanctify our lives. The Sermon on the Mount, if you truly try to live by it, it will make you different. It will change you. It will mark clearly the things that are of the culture and the things that are of God. There is no ambivalence in what Jesus is saying. There is no gray area. Jesus is molding his disciples on the ways of the kingdom and away from the ways of the culture. And I think today we need the same thing. We need the identical same thing. We need to look at the Sermon on the Mount to get our bearings, to see the areas where I still need to work on and you need to work on, and humbly bow down before God and say, Help. Help. Give me your spirit to help me become truly a disciple and a follower, not just a churchgoer, not just a pew warmer, but an actual disciple, intentional disciple who wants to become like my master. The Sermon on the Mount is, I, I, I divide it a little bit in that beginning with chapter 5, the first 11 verses is what we call the Beatitudes. I think Father Steve preached on that when I was away, on the character of the kingdom. And I believe the Beatitudes is what I call the character of the believer. In the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor, blessed are those that mourn, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, blessed are you when you're persecuted. That is the character of the believer as it's being shaped. And then I believe uh, Deacon Diane preached last week, and I believe she preached on uh, being the salt of the earth and being the light of the world. That is the mission of the believer. The Beatitudes are the character of the believer, becoming salt on the earth and becoming light to the world. That is the mission of the believer. And what I'm going to be talking about today is what I term the righteousness of the believer. How we live rightly before God and among men. The righteousness of the believer. That's what righteousness means. How do I live in such a way that God is glorified and that I am representing him in the world? That is righteousness. Right living before God and before men. At the end of chapter 5, Jesus says this, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, 
you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. That's pretty radical. That's pretty radical. It's not about performance. It's about righteousness. It's not about doing. It's about living in a right attitude and a right relationship with God that then affects the way we live. Unless your righteousness is greater than the righteousness of your preachers and teachers and Pharisees and scribes and television evangelists and so on and so on, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. Your righteousness has to be based on God's teaching alone and not on any big preacher, including people like me. You have to go to the Word. You have to check everything I teach you. You have to follow the Word of God and not the opinions of Father Jose. Because I can err as much as anyone else. The main problem that Jesus had with the teaching of the Pharisees is that they set so many rules on the Word of God. In order to fulfill the Word of God, they set so many rules that everything was into external life instead of changing us internally. You hear me? In order to not work on the Sabbath day, you couldn't turn on a candle on Friday night. And you, couldn't, you, you couldn't turn it off. That was working on the Sabbath, and that would break the commandment. That's a rule that is not even in Scripture. You couldn't walk more than a mile because you would be working on the Sabbath. That is not in Scripture. That was an additional rule of the religious leaders. There were so many rules in order to protect us from sinning and breaking God's commandment that it was all about externals, what to do, what not to do, instead of changing us from the inside out so that we can become and do from the inside out and express our walk with God by the things we did. The problem of Jesus is that much of the teaching the people were receiving in that culture was about performance, not transformation. Was about doing rather than being changed. And that was part of the problem that Jesus had with the teachings. And then at the end, at the whole end of the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 7, Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Man, if you really, if you really want to be radical for Jesus, you've got to stop at these verses and say, wait a minute, am I going to be one of those knocking at heaven's door? Lord, 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 let me in. Just calling him Lord doesn't make him Lord of your life. Just the title doesn't do anything for you. It's making him Lord of your life, actually making him Lord, master, king, general, CEO over your life that will make you a true follower and disciple of Jesus. So Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. 
But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The passage that I want to deal with today is actually divided into four sayings of Jesus that become extremely radical and extremely important and that we all fall short on. Let me just say that from the beginning, and I did say all of us. But the first part of of the section we're dealing with today on righteousness, first of all, it speaks about murder. By the way, when the sixth commandment says, thou shalt not murder, it actually means murder. It doesn't mean if you kill someone in an accident or by accident. It actually means predetermined planning to commit murder and take somebody's life. Okay, a conscious decision that you make to hurt someone and perhaps take their life, that's what this commandment is about. Thou shall not commit murder. And that would be a violation, or Jesus is referring to the sixth uh, commandment. The second part is adultery, which has to do with the seventh commandment. Thou shall not commit adultery. Then he speaks about divorce, which is related to that same commandment. And third or fourth, depending how you count, he speaks about swearing, which has to do with the fourth commandment. You will not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So anytime you swear by God's name or or anything like that, it would be a breaking of the commandment, and Jesus tells us that we are not to swear at all. Not by anything in heaven, not by anything on earth, and even not by anything in your life. Swearing is not part of the disciples' life, but rather learn to be honest always so that people trust you. Therefore, your yes is yes, your no is no, and beyond that, you don't need to say anything else. When people know who you are, they will trust your word without asking you to swear by God's name or swear on your mother's grave or swear on your grandchildren. If you have to do that, you're already saying, I'm not trustworthy, therefore I need a different, a different testimony to, to do it for me. Your yes should be yes, your no should be no, and nothing more than that. And it's up to them if they want to believe you or not. Just be honest enough so that you earn people's trust as a believer, so that your testimony is always accepted with the intention with which you give it, without having to swear. But in all these four things that are here that Jesus talks about, I just want to deal with one of them. I just want to deal with one of them this morning. Each of them begin with the words, you heard that it was said to the men of old, or you heard that it was said, or you heard it was said. And then Jesus adds, but I say to you. It doesn't mean that he makes it easier. In fact, sometimes he makes it harder. But he points to us that he has the authority to speak Ask God and for God to truly interpret what the commandment meant. Because it's very easy for us preachers to fill churches by not telling the full truth 
in the honest truth in the challenges that the Word of God brings. Jesus is radical, and preachers need to be radical of what the cost of truly following Jesus is about. Otherwise, you may find yourself at the gates of heaven thinking you're in, and a preacher has misled you. So always look at how radical Jesus is in his teaching. The one part of this that I want to deal with, which I think is important, is the part, the first part on murder. Listen, I can spend all day here talking about adultery, divorce, and swearing, but I I just want to teach you on the first one, because whatever I say, it also goes to the others. Let's take a look at that. One of the things about the Sermon on the Mount that I find so interesting is that in a way Jesus is saying, if this is murder, take a few steps back and take a look at where the desire to murder came from. If this is adultery, take a look a few steps back and see where the lust came from. If this is stealing, Take a few steps back and see why you are coveting somebody else's belongings because you're not satisfied with yours. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is asking us to review the internal things in our lives that may cause us to eventually do something that breaks the commandments. Jesus wants us to look at the internal cancers the internal brokenness, the internal things that need to be transformed, because when those are transformed, you will not need to murder. You will not need to steal. You will not need to commit adultery. You will not need to do any of these things. But you have to check what's going on inside if you want the outside to be pleasing to God. Amen? Amen. So this is part of what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. And in this reference to murder, thou shalt not murder, or you heard that it was said to the men of all, thou shalt not kill, or thou shalt not murder, Jesus says, but I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother. How many of you have been angry with your brother? Well, we all committed murder then in our hearts. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is very radical about the transformation that he wants to bring to our lives. But I want you to notice three things in this, uh, in this passage that just deals with murder. One, it says, but if I, I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother. And then there's a clause that follows it that says, without cause. Without cause. And you know the reality, sometimes we get angry at people. We get really angry at people, for, and they haven't done anything to us. They just happen to post something on Facebook that we find extremely upsetting to us. Because his views or her views are different from mine, without a cause, I can be so angry with that person that some of us puts the worst responses we can possibly put back to that person. And it begins a confrontation unnecessarily. 
How many times we get angry with people and they actually haven't done anything to us. We're just angry with them because they're different, they believe different, they act differently, and we just don't like them, period, whether they've done something good or not, or bad or not. We just don't like some people. We don't like the way they talk. We don't like the way they dress. We, without a cause, we sometimes are angry with our brothers and sisters. Jesus says, but I say to you that if you are angry, whoever is angry with his brother has already committed murder. Because anger leads us to insults. How many of you have insulted another driver out on the road? Okay. How many of us have used words that are not very becoming when someone cuts us on the road and we can call them stupid, we can call them retard, we can call them worse things. We can remember their mother, their father, and everybody else in the family. The thing is that sometimes I find myself doing the same thing that person did to me on a different occasion. But then I'm willing to say, oh, forgive me, please forgive me. But we're not willing to act sometimes in the same manner to someone who cuts us off. Sometimes we act angrily toward our brother or our sister without cause. They haven't done anything to us. We're just angry because of whatever thing in our lives or the way we measure other people but don't want to be measured back with the same measurement. Jesus says that if you get angry enough to be insulting, you are just one more step to getting closer and slapping somebody on the face. And then from a slap, it turns into a fight. And from a fight, it could conceivably turn into murder. Now you've broken the commandment. But if you check your anger, if you check your anger and you do not allow yourself to be angry, especially without reason, you will not get to the actual breaking of the commandment, which is sin and birth's death. Jesus is asking us to check our anger, to take a time out before we open our mouth, to look at the areas of our lives and who are those people that sometimes push our buttons more than others. And we probably need to pray for them more than the others. So the first thing we find is that Jesus says, I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother. Then he turns it around. And he says, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, if you're trying to come and please God with your gift, and there at the altar you remember that your brother has something against you. Oh, thou, now things changed. Now it's not you who's angry with your brother. 
Now you remember at the altar that your brother has a problem with something you've done. He says, Leave your gift, therefore, at the altar, and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. If you bring your gift to the altar, if you bring your worship to God on Sunday morning, if you bring your tithes, and you're so proud of your tithes, and you're so proud of church attendance, and then you remember that there's someone who has an issue with you, he says, leave your gift at the altar and go and reconcile with that brother. That is another Christian. A brother is another Christian, a man or a woman. Go reconcile. You can never be reconciled with God as long as you're not reconciled with your brother. You can never have a rightful relationship with God where God forgives you your sins unless you're willing to forgive the sins of your brother or your sister. Amen? Amen. You can never please God until you have pleased Him by loving your neighbor and loving your brother as you should be loved. So if you come to the altar already to praise God. But you remember that someone, another brother, has an issue with you that you've been storing, even if you haven't voiced it out. You know it in your heart. Go reconcile with your brother and then come and be reconciled with God. And then the third part of the scene is this. Jesus says, agree with your adversary. So this is not necessarily your brother anymore. This may be someone you have a problem with. They may not even be a Christian. They may be a co-worker. There may be a neighbor. There may be somebody else. This is someone you have an issue with who becomes now your adversary. And he says, agree with your adversary quickly. In other words, resolve the problem while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary delivers you to the judge, the judge hands you over to the officer or to the guard, the guard throws you into prison, and I say to you, you won't come out of prison until you have paid everything that you owe that person. It is better to reconcile. It is better to find a way to agree together. It is a way, even if you have to give something up, it is better to get off your high horse, reconcile, ask for forgiveness, give forgiveness, rather than go to court and then have the court judge, because believe me, the judge may not be a believer at all, and he could care less about either of you. He's just going to have a rule on, on the case. So if you are angry at your brother, or if your brother is angry at you, or if you have a problem with anyone else, Reconcile. You see, the value of the kingdom is reconciliation. The value of the kingdom is to live in peace and be peacemakers. And by God do we need peacemakers today in our nation. Rather than all that we just perpetuate, perpetuate email after email, text after text, Facebook Posting after Facebook posting. 
The value of the kingdom, the value in a disciple, the quality of a disciple that follows Jesus is to be a reconciler as Jesus came to reconcile us with his Father in heaven. We need to be reconcilers, peacemakers. We need to love even our enemies as we want to be loved. Because that is what the kingdom of God is about. Now, let me bring this to a closing by giving you three things we need to do. Three things that we need to do, or that I would like you to do. First of all, because the teachings of Jesus are so radical, and we honestly realize that we fall short of the teachings of Jesus, the first thing that all of these teachings in the Sermon on the Mount does is it draws me to the cross. The teachings of Jesus are so radical that they draw, drive me to my knees to ask God to forgive me for my sins. That God is sufficient and only He is sufficient to make out of me a sinner, a saint. The teachings of Jesus are so radical that they drive me to fall at the foot of the cross and ask for forgiveness for me and for my brother and for my neighbor and for all who have sinned against me. The teachings of Jesus are so radical that I understand that it's not about my performance because I can never be good enough. It's all about the grace of God from the cross of God by the mercies of God, in the blood of God. That's the first thing I want you to know. That what Jesus is teaching us is not about performance. He's actually pointing out areas where you and I fail, and we need to go to the cross for forgiveness. The second thing that I believe these teachings of Jesus do is that it actually confronts me. I mean, any one of those that we listed there and the rest of them in the Sermon on the Mount, it confronts me to know that I still need change in my life. That I still haven't arrived to the fullness of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. That I still need to make changes from the inside out. That I need to still look inside of me and ask the Holy Spirit, change me from inside. Take the anger away. Take the lust away. Take the desire to steal away. Take anything that is contrary to God and change me from the inside. Change the brokenness. Change the thing that needs to change in me so that I have no need to actually externally do the thing. Jesus is not kidding with what he's teaching. He intends us to look at the inside and bring about change. But the third thing that I want to encourage to you is that if you have a problem with a brother or a sister, or a brother or a sister has a problem with you, or a neighbor has a problem with you, I would say to you, pray the more for that person. 
Pray every day for that person. And perhaps at the beginning your prayer is, Lord, I'm so angry at this person. I don't know why I'm praying for them because I really don't want you to bless them. Maybe that's where you start. I guarantee you that after six months of praying every day for that person you have a problem with, your heart will be changed and you'll be more like Christ. The more you pray for anyone you have an issue with, the more the prayer will change you, if not the other person. It'll change you. So I want to say to you, if you have an issue with anyone, if it's a brother in the church, go deal with that brother, talk to that brother, deal with it, make the changes you need to make in your heart, and start praying earnestly for you and for him, for you and for her, until God blesses both of you into the likeness that Christ wants to see in us. The more you pray for your enemy, the more you will bless your enemy, the more you'll be ready to forgive your enemy, the more you will be like Christ in every way. So the three things I've asked you to do is go to the cross and ask God for forgiveness for your failures in being the disciple that he means you to be. Number two, that you make the changes that need to be made. Don't brush it under the rug. If there are areas of your life that you need to check, check them and by the power of the Spirit, allow God to do surgery. And number three, if you have a problem with anyone, a relative, a church member, even an outsider, start praying for that person. Start praying for that person until God changes your heart and you forgive as you want to be forgiven. Those are three things I'm asking you to do in reference to the breaking of this commandment. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not kill anyone's reputation. Thou shalt not insult your brother or your sister. Thou shalt not hurt your brother or your sister. Because God will not be pleased with that life. And you can call yourself a disciple, but you are not. And so we're all in that journey. I'm still on that journey. Every day of my life, I'm on, I'm on that journey. But I have no option if I want to truly become like Jesus. Amen?